Please be seated. And uh, it'd be helpful if you would um, keep page nine in front of you. Um, as I said earlier, today is Epiphany Sunday, and um, it's kind of one of the lesser well-known holidays of the church year. Um, always gets eclipsed, kind of get, always gets passed over, but Epiphany falls on a Sunday today, so we're going to think about it. And, uh, epiphany means unveiling, the manifestation of Jesus, and it's the, uh, the day of the church year where we remember this very familiar story of uh, the wise men, sometimes we call them the magi, who uh, travel to see the child Jesus. Let me point out something, at least that I find interesting, about the reading, that gospel reading. Um, this story, on the one hand, it, it's all about how these, these magi, these wise people, these scholars, they find Jesus. And, and the story, again, like I said, is all about revealing who Jesus is, revealing his identity to us. But the story does it. The story does the work of unveiling who Jesus is in a very interesting way. <clears throat> Matthew, the writer of this story, shows us Jesus primarily in this story by showing his impact on other people. Now, this is a really clever way of telling stories, and it's one of the most common, um, you, you see it commonly in uh, horror films. Um, for instance, have you ever seen Jaws? Um, that's about as scary as I get. Um, I just can't handle more. Um, 1979, something like that-ish. Um, it's about a big shark, right? Um, but if you watch the film, and I'm not suggesting you, you know, anyways, not endorsing, but you know, if you were perhaps to watch the film, you would notice that, uh, that you don't see the shark right away. Did you know that? It's scary <clears throat> in part because you don't see the shark right away. If he just shows you a shark, that's like, you know, you could turn on, I don't know, a PBS documentary uh, on Shark Week and, and watch that. But you could go to the, to the aquarium. That's not scary. But what is scary is watching the shark chase people and watching the shark shake a boat and watching the shark chase people on the beach and whatever the shark does. The impact that the shark has on people is scarier and, in a way, reveals the real identity of this shark. This isn't just any normal shark. It's a really, really scary one. The impact that the shark has on other people reveals the shark's identity and the scariness more effectively than just showing you the shark swimming around. Now, in kind of a similar way, Matthew in this story, shows us Jesus' identity primarily by showing his impact on other people. Notably, his impact on Herod and his impact on the Magi, these wise men. And what we're going to see is that Jesus, from the time he's a little child, Jesus is unveiling the deepest allegiances of the heart. The deepest allegiance of Herod's heart. The deepest allegiance of the Magi's heart. And as you and I look at, the, at this uh, story and watch those deep allegiances unveiled, we're going to be able to see why it is that Jesus deserves our deepest allegiance. All right? We're going to look at Herod. We're going to look at the Magi. We're going to look at their deep allegiances. And then we're going to look at ourselves. Okay, first of all, let's start with Herod. Okay, um, look at the reading, picture the scene. 
Jerusalem is about six miles north of Bethlehem. And Jerusalem, you probably know this, uh, was then, still is, um, the, uh, although that's debatable, isn't it, the capital of the area. And Herod is the king at this point. Or at least he calls himself the king of Judea. Because at this point, you know that Rome is really in charge. And, um, but as long as Herod uh, kind of makes Rome happy, Herod can kind of act like the king and do broadly what he wants to do. And he was, this particular Herod was called Herod the Great. He was notorious for all sorts of things. He built a lot of stuff. You can see a lot of the stuff that he built still today in Jerusalem and, um, and the surrounding area. But he was also notoriously cruel. He killed several members of his immediate family. Uh, all through his reign, he's desperate for power, and he's desperate to keep hold of his power. Now, everything's fine in Herod's life, apparently, until these magi show up, these wise men. They show up in Jerusalem, and they're a total surprise. They're, they're foreigners. They're not from Judah. They're not Jewish. They are probably from Babylon, which... If you know the history of Israel, is an old and historic enemy of Israel. But they're intellectual elites from their country. They're the equivalent of being a professor from, like, NYU or Columbia, or whichever college you went to. Um, and they show up, and immediately they command respect. And they show up asking a question, and it's a question that just strikes fear in the heart of Herod, right to his heart. Look at verse 2. Here's the question. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. <clears throat> now, here's my question. Why is Herod so frightened by that question? Did, I mean, that doesn't sound like that scary a question. Why is he troubled? Because at least from one perspective, he should, he should have felt very secure. Rome had his back, apparently. He had built a huge temple in Jerusalem, one of the wonders of the ancient world, and, and therefore he had the loyalty of the religious community behind him. His regime should have been fairly secure, but nevertheless, he is desperately frightened by this question. Where is this child born, king of the Jews? We saw his star. We're foreigners, but we've come to worship him. Why is he frightened? Well, watch what he does, and you'll see why he's afraid. Verse 3. When Herod heard this, he was troubled, frightened, concerned, stressed out, and all Jerusalem with him. Verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, focusing on that word Christ, the Magi didn't say anything about Messiah. They didn't say anything about Christ. Herod brings up that title. You know, by the way, um, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Uh, well, that, that may not be obvious. Um, Christ is a title. It means Messiah. Anointed king. And that was frightening for Herod because Herod knew our first reading, Isaiah. And he also knew the psalm that we read earlier. And from those sources and several other sources, he knew that the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, promised that one day God would give Judah, Israel, a king who trumped all other kings. Uh, this king that was coming would demand allegiance of the entire nation of Israel, but also, crucially, of all of Israel's kings. He would be the king of kings, so to speak. Now, that's why Herod's frightened. 
Because the worst thing that he can possibly imagine is that he would have to surrender allegiance to the Messiah. Deeply unpleasant to him. And from our first reading in Isaiah, he knew that when the Messiah came, one of the ways you'd know that the Messiah was here is that people from all other nations would start coming to Jerusalem saying, where is he? Now, Jesus has done basically nothing except get born. And already, he's challenging Herod's deep heart allegiance. And you can see it in Herod's fear. But then keep going, because you can also see it in the way he uses the scriptures. So what he does is he calls together his own uh, religious scholars, the, his equivalent of the Magi, and he asks them, hey, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? And uh, they bring up uh, Micah chapter 5, which is an Old Testament prophet. And Micah says that the, this real king, this, this true ruler that Israel can finally trust, this shepherd who's going to take care of the whole nation, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, same place that David was, was uh, born. Now, what's interesting here is that Herod is, he's not exactly an unbeliever. Do you catch that? He actually holds the scripture in high regard. He sort of kind of believes it. And he definitely wants to present himself as a believer. So what he does is he goes to the Magi and he says, listen, um, uh, apparently the kid's going to be in Bethlehem. Go to Bethlehem, find the kid, and when you come, tell me all about him so that I can go and worship him too. But you can tell, can't you? It's a lie. Now, he believes the Bible. Watch this, stay with me. He believes the Bible is factually true. And he wants people to believe that Christ the Messiah has his allegiance. But the reality here is that he's just using the Bible as kind of an intelligence-gathering tool um, so that he can protect his own regime. He ultimately wants to kill the Christ. He tries to in a few, uh, just a couple paragraphs later. Now pause. Do you see how Jesus is unveiling Herod's deep heart allegiance here? You know... Um, Political leaders ends up have been uh, claiming Christ for their own political advantage from right at this point. But also right at this very point, Jesus, his impact, even though he apparently is doing nothing, but his impact upon Herod ends up unveiling the deep reality of his heart allegiance and points out that he's a fraud. Now, if you want to see Herod's heart allegiance ask three questions in this text. One, what's going on in his heart? Two, how does he use the scriptures? And three, what is he willing to surrender? First of all, his heart. His heart, as we've already seen, is filled with fear. Why? Because his allegiance is to himself. And that's under threat. He's frightened because it's under threat. That's what's happening in his heart. What's happening? How does he use scripture? He uses the Bible as just a kind of political tool. His allegiance, once again, is deeply to himself, and he uses religion as just a political resource for himself. But then, thirdly, third question, what is he willing to surrender? 
And in one way, he surrenders a lot. In another way, he surrenders nothing. He surrenders a lot because he surrenders, for instance, his integrity. He lies to the Magi. But it gets more sinister than that. Because just a couple paragraphs after our reading, he orders all the young children of Bethlehem to be killed. And he does all of that. He murders. He surrenders the lives of these innocent children in order to protect his own allegiance to himself. He's a pretty bad guy. Um, and he is an extreme example of what the Bible and Christianity calls sin. Now, very often people imagine that sin, when they think about sin, they think about naughty behavior. Don't do naughty things. Um, it's true that sin always leads to bad behavior. Uh, but if that's all that you think sin is, is just acting naughty every now and then, then you'll either uh, trivialize sin or you'll think that sin is rather easy to overcome in your life. Because you'll look at somebody else who is naughty more often than you are and you'll think highly of yourself. Sin is deeper than that. Sin is a deep allegiance to self that is always desperately frightened of anyone who might threaten that allegiance to self. And sin very regularly uses religion as a cover. It's kind of this camouflage of religious devotion that we throw over ourselves in order to hide or obscure a deep-seated heart allegiance to myself. And you can see how Herod did that. Uh, more urgently, can you see how we do that? And I say it's an urgent question because um, if, we, uh, if we fool ourselves by our own camouflage, but deep down our heart is deeply committed to myself, if that's the way I live, and if I never examine it, and if I never look underneath the camouflage of my religious devotion or of my good deeds or of whatever it is that I throw over myself to cover and to fool myself and others, if I never look underneath that, if I never see the ugly bits, then what will happen is that self-allegiance will grow and mature, and after a while, friends, we will end up exploiting people. We're, not gonna, we're probably not going to kill people. But it doesn't have to be that bad to be excruciatingly horrible. Okay. Well, that was heavy. That's Herod. Let's look at the Magi. And I want to ask the same three questions of the Magi. What's happening in their heart? How do they use the scriptures? And thirdly, uh, what are they willing to surrender? First, what do you see going on in their hearts? In other words, do you see the joy that's in them? Look, look at verse 10. When they see the star again, watch, watch what it says. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The closer they get to Jesus, the more joy they experience. And it's the opposite because of Herod, because Herod's fear increases the more he hears about Jesus. Why do the Magi get so excited? Why are they so full of joy? Well, they're excited immediately because of the star. But clearly, they're not just excited because of the astronomical phenomenon, whatever that was. They're excited about what the star means. 
The, the Magi, like I said, they were scholars, and they had studied all sorts of religious texts. And clearly, they knew something of the Hebrew scriptures. Um, they knew, at least, that this star uh, was leading them to a king, but not just a regular king. They knew, at least a little bit, that this king, verse 6, was a shepherd. Not all kings are shepherds. This king was a shepherd, and this king was better than, the, than Rome or Persia or Herod because they knew that all of those kings were deeply corrupt. But they had a sense. Why else would they follow the star? They had a sense that they were being guided, shepherded, led towards the one king that really deserved their allegiance. You know, I find it interesting that um, they first hear of Jesus, they first hear whispers of Jesus in some regard, through their own culture and their philosophy. We don't know much about their culture and their philosophy. We can conjecture a little bit. Um, we know that surely part of their academic study was, uh, was astrology in some way, which is funny. The, the Bible never authorizes astrology in any kind of comprehensive way at all. But nevertheless, we don't know all the details. Somehow, through their own strange philosophy, which for us is easy to dismiss, nevertheless, somehow they came to at least desire a better king than any king they'd ever experienced before. And so they rejoice because they want to give their allegiance to this better king. But it doesn't stop there. Joy is happening in their hearts, but watch how they deal with Scripture. Because as, you know, their own kind of cultural, uh, philosophical, and academic background could only get them to asking the question, but it couldn't get them to the solution. They would never have found Jesus without the scriptures guiding them in the end. But do you see how they use the Bible very differently than Herod? Herod uses the scripture in order to grasp onto his own self-allegiance, whereas the Magi use scripture to find the one that they had desired and the one who deserved their deep allegiance. Do you see the difference? It's a huge difference. What's going on in their hearts? They're full of joy because they desire a real shepherd. How do they deal with scripture? They use scripture to lead them to Jesus Christ. Third question. What are they willing to surrender? Herod surrendered his integrity. Herod surrendered the lives of others. What do the Magi surrender? Look at verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, do you see their movements? Imagine their movements. They see the child. They fall down before the child. They worship the child. And then they open up their treasures. Now, the whole scene is calculated to uh, present a total surrender of their allegiance and all that they hold dear. Why would they do that to a kid? I mean, they were the elite. They, were, they weren't needy. They're clearly wealthy. They're at the top of their society. Why would they surrender their allegiance to this little child? Well, remember what we said at the beginning. The impact that Jesus has on others reveals Jesus' true identity. 
The Magi surrender their allegiance to Jesus because of the unique kind of shepherd that he is, the unique kind of king that he is. See, by this point, the Magi, again, have some knowledge of the Old Testament prophecies. By this point, they know that God has been guiding them through this star. By this point, they know that God was leading them to a leader who serves and cares for his people and does not exploit them. And so they wanted to give him their allegiance. And there was actually more going on than they realized at that point. Because when the Magi opened up their gifts, they weren't the only ones who were giving away their treasure. What I mean is that the child, Jesus himself, is God's treasure being given to the Magi. In a way, God himself, as the Magi were opening up their treasure, God himself was opening up his treasure, surrendering his best treasure to them and for them. Or you can think of it differently. Um, you, you know, it's silly to give your allegiance to a leader who is going to exploit you, isn't it? On the other hand, it makes a lot of sense to give your allegiance to a leader who's willing to sacrifice for you, doesn't it? The worst leaders in the world are the exploitative leaders. The best leaders in the world are those who are willing to sacrifice themselves for those whom they lead. And that explains why the Magi surrender their allegiance. Because when they met Jesus, even though they didn't have all the information, they, they were meeting God who is giving himself wholly to his people. Um, God gave himself to his people by becoming one of his people. So that God the Son uh, made himself vulnerable in the person of Jesus Christ by becoming human. And I say he made himself vulnerable because Herod, just again, paragraphs later, tries to kill Jesus. He escapes, but then takes him 33 years, but they eventually get him. And when Jesus died upon the cross... That was God fully surrendering his best treasure so that he could give amnesty and pardon to people whose hearts looked a lot like Herod's. Now, the Magi didn't have the full story, but they did know enough to say this kid desires my, it deserves my entire trust. And look at the difference it makes. By the end, they know that Herod's an imposter, unworthy of their allegiance, and so they abandon Herod. And they end up not reporting Jesus and his family and protecting them. Do you notice the opposite of Herod? Herod uh, holds on to his self-allegiance, and in the end, he exploits the vulnerable. The Magi surrender their allegiance. And they've got every reason to shield the vulnerable. Now, all this uh, demands a pretty important question, and that question is simply this. How is Jesus impacting you? Um, let me ask different questions. What's going on in your heart when you consider Jesus? How are you relating to the scriptures? What are you willing to surrender? What's going on in your heart? When you um, hear of Jesus, when you consider Jesus, um, are you alarmed? Does, it, does he alarm you? Uh, if he does, that might be a good sign. It might be a sign that you're actually taking him seriously and actually hearing him as he is. 
If Jesus never alarms you, um, be alarmed. If Jesus alarms you, then it can be a sign that he's actually challenging your deep-hearted self-allegiance. And every one of us should be afraid of ending up like Herod. Because if we hold stubbornly to ourselves, others will be hurt. And God will eventually keep us accountable, as he did Herod. We should be frightened of that. And if Jesus is challenging your allegiances, then consider the, what I expect would be the Magi's counsel. I expect that the Magi, if they were here, would say, you know what? Stop looking at yourself and just look at Jesus for a minute. Can you, can, can you imagine a better leader? Can you imagine a better shepherd? I would imagine that they would say, let me tell you our story about how God led us. We we didn't know anything of this God of Israel, but one thing led to another, and all of a sudden we found ourselves being led by this God. And we were led by this God to see him face to face in the person of Jesus Christ, and we have not been disappointed. And I expect that they would tell you that as they surrendered to Jesus more and more, that joy that they had tasted when they saw the star grew over time. And it is the joy that they now experience with Christ forever in heaven. What's going on in your heart? Look at Jesus. Secondly, how are you using the scriptures? Use them like the Magi. Use the scriptures to clarify Jesus for you. Don't use the scriptures to distance yourself from Jesus. The Magi would never have found Jesus without the scriptures. We won't either. How are you using the scriptures? Are you? Lastly, what are you willing to surrender? Because the Christian life is a long process of uh, taking all that we are and surrendering it joyfully to Jesus, every area of our lives. And it's joyful because he gave all that he is for us first. When you see that, it'll make sense to surrender all that you are to Jesus. Every area of your life, no silos, no no little bits of your life where um, Jesus' authority is negotiable. Not because he's a tyrant, but because he's the opposite. And if all of that concerns you, look again to Jesus on the cross and just watch him give all that he is for you and you will find one who makes all the sense in the world to surrender to. And that's when you will be seeing Jesus as he is. That will be the epiphany. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, Our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.